Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a big show for book lovers of all ages today. Now, were you a fan of the Hardy Boys or the Nancy Drew books? I read the Hardy Boys, but I loved the Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators books. They had titles like The Mystery of the Dead Man's Riddle and The Secret of Terror Island. They were novels for young adults that featured amateur detectives solving, like, frankly, baffling supernatural crimes, and they featured things like a whispering ancient Egyptian mummy or maybe a, a human skeleton that talked. They were super fun. And now there is a book for a whole new generation of young readers. It's called The Montague Twins, The Witch's Hand. It's a new graphic novel written and illustrated by some folks that are going to join me shortly, Nathan Page and Drew Shannon. It's in stores now, and it's the story of twins who solve mysteries with their cunning and just a little bit of magic. More on The Montague Twins later on in the show. First, let's meet best-selling author Michael Harris. In his new book, All We Want, Michael has a look at consumer culture and finds a roadmap to a healthier future through three realms, the worlds of craft, the sublime, and care. And don't worry, we'll explain all of this in the upcoming interview. He is fascinating, and he joined me via Zoom from his home in Vancouver. It's an amazing feeling to have something that you've worked on for a long time uh, finally in the hands of of people. What do you? How are you feeling about it? Uh, yeah, it becomes a concrete thing in the world, right? And yeah, so uh, I yeah, I have to admit I did go to you know the local indigo and <laughs> just observe it in in the wild. Yeah, it's it's uh, it does not get old that feeling. Do you do that thing where you uh, turn it around on the shelf so that the cover is facing out or you put it on the end of a display? <laughs> I think I've done, I, I admit, I've done that with my books. There there are times when people, authors next to my book uh, are are famous enough, I think, uh, <laughs> and and they don't need any more help. And, right. and I, I think at one point I have, I have turned, I have turned books, yes. Yeah, we all do it. We just don't all admit to it. Well, congratulations on it. Um, you have said that you wanted to leave, uh, and this is a quote, a slightly apocalyptic taste in the mouth of the reader. Uh, tell me why that is. I mean, it it is uh, it is necessary to have that feeling of extreme drama on some level um, because we are dealing in extreme things here, right? Uh, our entire civilization is dependent upon a stable climate. And that stable climate only uh, only works because we have 300 parts per million of, of, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. For the first time in a million years, that number is now over 400 parts per million. So uh, we are destabilizing the climate that all of our... Uh, and everything we love depends upon. So really the stakes can't be larger. And let's talk then about the link between consumerism, which is very much a part of this book, uh, and then climate change. How do the two relate to one another? So there was a time in human history when uh, population growth was the main driver 
of uh, of greenhouse gas emissions and 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 uh, uh, environmental issues. That that time has has passed, and we the, the UN has now acknowledged that consumerism is the main driver of of greenhouse gas emission and, and climate change now. So all, all of those uh, everyday things that, that we do have, have become uh, something a little bit fraught. Um, and on top of that, it's not just us in the West, it's not just us in North America or Europe, right? It, uh, there are billions more people who will be entering the middle class around the world over the next few decades uh, and those people are going to be entering the consumer game as well. So this this is only mounting. So we talk about big things here, and those two answers we're talking about worldwide yeah. <laughs> situations. But the book is written from a more personal point of view, yeah. and uh, you say that the book began with a sense of bitterness at not having what your parents had, yeah. and I think that's something that. Uh, people, certainly you live in Vancouver, I live in Toronto, uh, people uh, won't soon be able to afford to buy houses in either of those places like our parents might have been able to do. Uh, but it, it, it trickles down from there. Why did that irk you so much? Yeah, it, I mean, bitterness might not have been the main taste in my mouth, uh, <laughs> you know, had I not been growing up in Vancouver. You know, <laughs> the the real estate market here has definitely made my whole generation. Um, I count myself as sort of the oldest of the millennials. I'm I'm 41, um, and uh, we you know we grew up. I grew up in the 1980s at a time when consumer culture was kind of going gangbusters, and there was a promise. There was a story. There was a dream of what our life was going to look like. Everything was up, 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 and Growth was the name of the game. You're listening to Michael Harris, author of All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. Available now wherever fine books are sold. Something happened, uh, you know, in the last decade or two where a lot more people started to realize that the, the jig is up, right? That that, that story of endless growth um, on a finite planet is going to run into an arithmetic problem. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're right. For me, it started off as a kind of selfish uh, thing. I, I was looking around and wondering, why aren't I going to have what my parents had? And it was only really as I began working on this book that that, uh, that view expanded. And it went from kind of a selfishness, I think, into something a little bit more global and far-reaching. Well, you spent time at a landfill. And that informed part of the writing of this book and this these are all kind of the bits of the triangle or maybe it's a, 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 i don't know a, a, a different geometric shape but all these points do finally uh fill in the picture if you connect all these dots mm -hmm. and uh so a landfill gave you this sense that my god look at the the amount of waste that we're producing all the time how do we find a way to stop that is is that essentially it yeah, I, the the landfill visiting the landfill, which I had never done before, um, became uh, this sort of important early early bit of research. I wanted to sort of confront the fact of consumer culture. One of the things that consumption does, or, or that our consumption does so well, is it it hides its own waste. 
right? We, we put everything out in the garbage bin and then it magically disappears and we can go to the store and buy more things. When you go to the landfill, you, you don't have uh, that option. You are surrounded by the fact of consumer culture. Um, even there uh, at the Vancouver landfill, the one I went to anyway, if you, the way it looks, if you imagine a cake filled with garbage and the icing is like a flowery meadow, they actually do a very good job of making it very pretty, very, very attractive, right? So it, that too became kind of a metaphor for the way we try to invisibilize uh, all of our waste. Uh, so yeah, facing up to it was, uh, was an important early bit of research. And you talk about how our lives are defined by endless growth and consumption, but then you offer a, a number of, of solutions for this. And um, it's not just as simple as saying, well, just don't buy anything more. It, it's, it's much more philosophical mm -hmm. than that. So mm -hmm. there are three uh, elements to this, three components to this craft, the sublime and care. Uh, mm -hmm. So let's work our way through those. And, and sort of briefly discuss how the, those elements can make such a difference in our lives. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I, I think what I came to believe was that our consumer story, the story that we've been telling ourselves was entirely based on one idea of the good life, mm. that, uh, that if we bought things, it would make us happy. And that happiness was actually the point of life too. Um, that's something that the book sort of challenges also. Maybe being happy isn't the only thing that life is about. Uh, so pleasure, satisfaction, happiness, this was sort of the, the goal uh, or, or the story that consumer culture sells us. I wanted to understand what are the other ways you can measure your life? So as you say, one of the first things that I, uh, that I came to was this idea of craft. Um, so if consumer culture is giving you, uh, del is delivering sort of ready-made products, craft, woodwork, quilting, all these things invite you to be curious about the way things are actually made. And if we become more curious about the material reality of all the things in our lives, we might be less interested in destroying the environment that supports us, I think. Well, it used to be in my generation, I'm older than you, but it used to be that uh, people fixed things. My grandmother darned socks. My mm -hmm. father could fix anything. He built a house. I can do none of those things <laughs> uh, because when you get a hole in a sock, it's very easy to go out and buy another pair. And sure. So we've lost, I think we've lost some of those just elemental skills that for generations and not that long ago, uh, people just took for granted. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this, this is part of a larger story of, of industrialization, right? Mm -hmm. When, when you're able to produce more things faster, uh, it becomes easier and easier for the consumer base to toss what, what is slightly broken and could have been repaired. It actually becomes a kind of uh, oh, what's, what's the, the phrase where you're, you're, you're kind of doing the, the calculus in your head. I could spend half an hour darning the sock, <laughs> or I could spend $3 on a new pair of socks. Yeah. What's my time store. worth essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is skills, as you were saying too, when, you know, when I started the chapter on craft, it was because I, 
uh, sort of discovered this guy, Don Gardner, who is a woodworker. Um, I, I actually saw a YouTube video of him working on a birch bark canoe. And I ended up going to uh, like the foothills outside of Banff to, uh, to try and find this guy and, and did find him in, in his workshop there. Uh, and just spent time watching him build, build a canoe and, and build bows and arrows. And uh, it was uh, at once inspiring and deeply unsettling because he had a, he had a understanding and an intimacy with the material world uh, that, you know, at, at 41, I, I had never had. And so, uh, uh, it, it definitely set me on a, on a new path there. Do you think that's part of the reason that you wrote the book with a paper and pencil because it, it helped you feel more connected than if you were banging away on a keyboard? Right. I, yeah, I had already knew that I wanted to look at craft. Uh, I didn't know what form it would take. Uh, and part of that part of, uh, um, reminding myself to think about the material reality of things that we use every day uh, led me to to write the book longhand. Yeah, uh, which is something I hadn't done with my previous two books, and I don't know if I'll do it again because it was definitely a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and you kind of have to teach yourself how to write again. I would imagine, literally, cursive is totally. a new thing after years of not really using it. And to think again, too, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, you know, when you're writing on a computer, as you know, um, you can pretty much type as fast as you can think. Uh, when when you have this kind of useful log jam at the end of your pencil or your pen, uh, it forces you to think before you write. You're not going to. It, it's sort of like how, how photographers talk. Um, old school photographers talk about how digital photography changed the way photographers work because they didn't have to care about how much film they were using. It, it, it brings an, it's not to say one is necessarily better than the other, but it brings a different dimension and, and, and a level of uh, patience and thoughtfulness, I think, to the work. Okay, the sublime is the next one. Mm -hmm. So for the chapter on sublime, uh, my husband and I went to uh, Lake Louise, also in Alberta, um, and just hiked around the kind of skirt of the glacier there. Uh, and the, I guess the idea with the sublime was uh, in, in, in our consumer culture, uh, we are being invited to, to have agency and mastery over our own lives, right? Everything is very controlled from the temperature of our rooms to what I'm going to have for lunch. You're listening to Michael Harris, author of All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy, available now wherever you buy fine books. The sublime is kind of an antidote to that, to that level of human control. It bowls you over. It kind of overwhelms you and uh, reminds you that you aren't necessarily the master of the universe, right? Uh, so th that, that was the important thing for me for the sublime was, was just allowing yourself to give up agency to a certain degree. And I think the sublime can probably come in many different forms, whether it's a beautiful scene from nature, uh, art, religion. I mean, in any of those aspects, you can find something that's bigger than yourself. Absolutely. You can, you can experience the sublime by closing your eyes and contemplating infinity. Mm. Uh, some people experience the sublime uh, through religious experience or by listening 
to uh, Mozart, uh, you know, or just looking at at the waves down by the seashore, you know, uh, there, there are a million ways that you can encounter it. You don't have to travel uh, to some kind of exotic locale. And care is the third component here. Mm -hmm. So near the end of the book, uh, I start talking about uh, my husband's mother uh, who has dementia and the care that he spends uh, or the the care he takes uh, for her. Uh, It's sort of an extraordinary example of of humanness, I thought, uh, watching Kenny take care of his mom. Um, and it takes place over the course of a couple of years. Uh, yeah. So I, so I guess, you know, if we're talking about these alternate stories, alternate modes of being as antidotes to consumer culture, taking care of somebody is the ultimate version of that, I think, because consumer culture is always about what can I get, right? How can, how can I be satisfied? And anyone who has taken care of an elderly parent uh, we'll know that, you know, it, it's not about being satisfied or even about winning something or achieving something. You, th- there's, it's, it's entropy. There, there's no positive end. Uh, and, and, and yet, uh, it, it still expands your humanity through, through the course of it. Uh, so that again, you know, is part of that idea I mentioned earlier that these things aren't about happiness necessarily or satisfaction but about a richer human experience. Do you think that each of these elements that we've talked about, craft, the sublime, and care, these were things that were much more common 40 years ago. So have we blown it in the last 30 or 20 years? I mean, never say never. Uh, <laughs> you know, I I mentioned the the pretty landscape that they have put on top of that landfill. At the beginning of the book, uh, I see that quite cynically, um, that this is a bit of covering up, Mm -hmm. trying to hide our waste. At the end of the book, I realize, you know, there's a woman who works at that landfill who decided to plant flowers all along the the kind of flank of it to try and bring a a moment of beauty to, to this kind of devastation. Um, and I think that speaks volumes about humanity's uh, optimism. Uh, I, I, I think we're always capable of rewriting the stories. This is, a, a, you know, a, a, an important point, I think, that the book tries to make, that the consumer culture we feel so entirely enmeshed in uh, is itself a story that was told to us uh, by advertisers, by corporations, it is not human nature. It, it is a story that has been told to us that became the story over the past century or so. And there are other stories coming down uh, the road, and and I, I think they may some of those new stories may actually be these very old stories of things like craft and the sublime and care. That was Michael Harris, author of All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. It's available wherever you buy fine books. If you are like me, you spent a lot of time as a kid reading the Hardy Boys, or the ones that I really liked, the Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators books. Mr. Applegate don't like kids on the property. Oh, it's all right. We know them, sort of. We're the Hardy Boys. Oh, is that so? 
Sons of the great private eye, huh? Our father's fitting, Hardy. Call yourselves the two little winks, I suppose. <laughs> what are you two doing, playing detective? We're not playing Mr. Jackie, honest, we're not. Tomorrow's episode, Boys in Danger. Or maybe you watched The Amateur Sleuths on television. Tonight, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew meet Dracula. Now there's a new book for a new generation. The Montague Twins, The Witch's Hand, is a graphic novel written by Nathan Page and illustrated by Drew Shannon and available now wherever you buy fine books. This book, the first in a series for young adult readers, tells the story of twins Al and Pete, their stepsister Charlie, and Rowan, their tutor in the ways of magic. It's a return to the old-school amateur detective genre with a refreshing modern update that tells a compelling story with important social awareness. Nathan Page and Drew Shannon join me via Zoom to discuss the secrets of the Montague twins and the mystery of the witch's hand. Not only is it uh, content-wise awesome, uh, but the book itself is just so beautiful. It must be exciting for you both. Absolutely. Like we were, we were lucky in that when the first book was released, um, we were actually roommates. We were living together, um, and we we kind of got to take that in together, and it was sheer disbelief like actually to know that it was out there and then to have like a bunch of boxes show up at the door full of full of copies of your book and they you know they just smell so crisp and you pull it out and it's like that process between making it and then having it in your hand is just it's so surreal well it takes a long time right it can take a very long time from the minute that you write it or you draw it to the moment it comes out and i remember when my first book came out the box arrived and they send you over 25 copies or whatever it is. And I didn't open it for the longest time because it had always been my dream to have my name on the spine of a book. And once I opened that box, I either had to, the dream was over. I had to do it again or whatever. So I just sat there and the box sat there unopened for a very long time. Uh, But it is an exciting time. Absolutely. And like you said, it's so funny because it does take such a long time. And like, so by the time I've completed my process, mm. Drew's is really just getting kicked off. So we kind of have these completely different associations with the making of it. Like what's a summer thing for me is, you know, a fall winter thing for Drew. Well, let's let's go back a little bit from there. How did you uh, end up collaborating? Because teams who work together and have worked together for a long time uh, are fairly rare. How did you end up collaborating? We were working together at just like a, a Joe job retail store. And I had just graduated from school and was wanting to sink my teeth into a personal project. And I had some just like weird ideas, but I didn't feel very confident as a writer. I knew that like I could adequately tell a story through pictures, but I never felt that, you know, I could really get the story across. And And Nathan had told me that he had done some writing and, and did some writing in high school and, and wrote some plays. And I was like, well, maybe we could work on this together and you could help me like, or like we could help each other break sort of ideas and, and figure out stuff that we would want to say with the story. And uh, Nathan agreed to that. (laughs) Yeah, and Nathan, how did you know that it was going to work? Or when did you know it was going to work? We met at that job, as Drew was saying. And fairly early on, there was clearly like a creative, uh, just a vibe. We were on the the same wavelength, which isn't to say that we like all of the same things. But 
we, we could just have these conversations about what we liked or didn't like about certain things, be it from Harry Potter to, you know, indie bands in town that we, we went to see. Like the conversation was always very collaborative. So I had a feeling it would work from the early on. In terms of knowing that it would work to this extent, like that, that that's the still the surprising part. Like it, it was, it didn't start out with any of this being in mind. We didn't think of it necessarily. We would love if it got published, but we're thinking that way. Right. We're just two buddies making something. You're listening to my interview with the Montague twins, the Witch's Hand writer Nathan Page and illustrator Drew Shannon. The book is available now wherever you buy fine books. Let's talk then about the Montague twins. I think people need to know that uh, they probably are uh, tangentially related somehow to the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and those kind of adventure stories. Uh, but there are big differences between those books uh, and and what the Montague twins are. Tell me a little bit about uh, just the creation of, of the title characters. You know, it was a, a long process because it really started off with, I think, conversations around again, getting to know each other, become friends, but also, you know, like something like Harry Potter. And, you know, to your point, like the, the, um, the mysteries, not, not just the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, but also like later ones like Lost Boys and stuff like that, that are, you know, just the, the teens solving, parents aren't around, they need to solve the, and save the day. So um, it was just sort of an, an evolution of, okay, so we got the mystery element, but what if they also do magic? But what if, you know, it's in the 60s, but what if, but what if, and then you throw a bunch of ideas at the wall, see what sticks, and then work back, backwards from there. I think the big thing that we, we, we tried to do is draw upon what we liked. Like, it was really easy for us to point to different references in terms of our sort of pop cultural sensibilities. And that helped inform what we liked and what we wanted to take from those stories, but then also what we wanted to do differently and maybe change for our story that, you know, felt like it made more sense from our point of view and our perspective. And I oh. think that like those obvious sort of Hardy Boy references are really like you were saying, like, it's just a starting point, you know, and then we take that and we go, that's like a fun trope, but what can we do with that to maybe play with it and update it a little bit as well? Yeah. Okay. So it's set in 1969. It's new England. Uh, but so many of the uh, ideas that are in this book are things that you wouldn't have seen in a Hardy Boys book or a Nancy Drew book. So we have very timely concerns in there, but I love how you've woven in real events from the day. So the Stonewall riots, uh, the lunar landing, um, you know, all that kind of stuff are, are woven throughout. Uh, and, and it makes the book, I think, uh, very much of its time set in 1969, but also uh, it gives you the ability to address uh, topics now that are very important to the people that will be uh, reading these books. And so tell me a little bit about doing the research and making sure that what uh, ended up in the book felt organic uh, to the story and making sure that it, that it, it, it belonged there. Yeah, that was, um, Doing the research has always been a favorite part of mine, but it's also a kind of an arduous one. Um, 
but exciting. That said, you know, to your point, these topics might not have necessarily come up in the 60s, but they were certainly still prevalent, which is why like we we carefully choose those events that we choose to, that we decide to mirror um, because we're like, this might not have been discussed, but if it had been, here's how we could see it happening. And people um, were still having lived experiences during that time that pertain to those things, even if they weren't talking about them openly. But we are now. And see, that's the thing I think that makes this book, even though it's set in 1969, it's very timely because we're still having a lot of the conversations. And I, I think that's also a large part of, um, you know, Drew and I growing up with this idea. Like when we started it, we started it almost 10 years ago now, and we were very different people. And by the, you know, now that you're able to have the book in your hand, we've we've grown older, we've educated ourselves and, you know, have become more receptive to being educated. So, you know, by, by virtue of that, these things are finding their way into our work. How do you work together? You mentioned that, you know, you work separately. Uh, Drew can't get started until Nathan's done his job. So tell me a little bit about how it works that way. We do a lot of pre-planning stuff. Like right now we're meeting up weekly to just discuss what we think book three is going to look like in terms of story and plot and where we want to see the characters go and where we want to see the characters grow. And that part is very collaborative. It's very much like making sure we're feeling like we're on the same page, making sure that we both have, you know, a similar perspective of our characters, but then also being really open to the other person's perspective on them. Because sometimes we don't always see like what we think, we don't always agree on what we think one character will will do or act or behave. And it's usually just about us trying to find a way into that person's perspective. But then afterwards, it's then, you know, okay, we're like, we're happy with that. And then Nathan will go off and, and plot that out and, and, and start writing a script around that. Um, and then, I mean, if he wants to talk about that process. Uh, <laughs> yeah, tell me, is it uh, writing for graphic novels? Uh, is it, uh, is there a difference between writing a regular prose novel or writing a screenplay? What's it closer to? Uh, I would, I equate it to a stage play actually. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's very much like a stage play only, um, you don't have to deal with actors <laughs> and, uh, your, your budget is limitless. You yep, can have any right. set you want. Um, <laughs> but I remember when we initially started talking about the idea, we weren't sure it was going to be, but I was getting really into graphic novels and comics again uh, for the first time since being a kid, really. And I read the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. And in the back of one of the trades, it has a sample of the script. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, well, this is, this is just like a play. I, I can write this. Like, I know what this is. So from then on, it was like, okay, so we're doing a comic book. Because initially we thought, like, is it going to be a novel with pictures? And we couldn't quite land on it. But then found a place once I figured out how to write it. <laughs> and, and let's talk then about the style of the artwork. And, and Drew, that's your department. Uh, it's full color. There is sort of a nostalgic feel to some of the drawings. Tell me uh, where your uh, inspiration comes from. Well, I think that nostalgia is definitely a part of what just generally is is I'm influenced by you know uh, I always reference um, the Tintin comics and some of the other European and French uh, comics from 
the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then and then you know old advertising art, and and then I I think I also just am aesthetically drawn to that period, you know, mid-century modern and that kind of mm-hmm. thing, and and it's just fun to it's fun to play with those design aesthetics, and um, and then I think the color is always a extremely <laughs> It's it's a it's a lot of work to try to get the color right um, because it's basically trying to perfect the mood and the lighting of a scene and and so thankfully digital tools really help me do that or I can I can go through different options and see a lot of different different things at once or or at least I can I can manipulate those a little bit easier and and then I and then I can feel like I've got like a good look for it down I can kind of copy paste that throughout the rest of the scene and then that lighting becomes consistent. Um, but I definitely am a, a, like a, anything vintage I was always looking at in school and being inspired by. And then, you know, I, I was trying to steal that stuff for a long time and then it just becomes your own thing after a while. You know, you learn about the techniques and then you do them a lot and, and you can recreate them again with digital tools and, and, and then those things start to become more and more your own thing and less more of an ape sense. You're listening yeah. to my interview with the Montague twins, the witch's hand writer, Nathan Page, and illustrator, Drew Shannon. The book is available now wherever you buy fine books. How many drawings are there in a book like this? I mean, it's, it's oh, thousands. huge. Thousands. Yeah. It's got to be easy. like, And that's something that is, you know, if I really let myself dive down that uh, <laughs> mentally, it can be a little intimidating because it's like, well, each panel, is its own illustration its own completed full color thought out illustration and i always think it's like it is like like nathan referenced uh filmmaking and there's a there is sort of a you know i we don't have to deal with we didn't mention filmmaking mentioned actors and set pieces but that's also a part of filmmaking and i think of it as like well i could put the camera literally anywhere in this scene you know but what do i need to show and what needs to come across and then what needs to come across in the next panel so that the one previous makes sense and the one after it makes sense as well. So even with the script in place, I'm still trying to think of, you know, blocking and staging and all that kind of stuff too, which is, which is fun. I mean, I, I enjoy doing it, uh, but I also have to know how to draw everything. <laughs> like I have to, I'm always like, I've never had to draw what, you know, that style of car before. I guess I better get very familiar with it because it shows up again and again. I occasionally get very specific instructions on what not to have in the script. (laughs) Please no stairs. Like I'm sick of stairs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Are are stairs and hands, are they the hardest things to draw? You know, I think I'm getting closer (laughs) to hands. It's cars and just like a crowded street. Any crowd is always, is always difficult because you want to make it feel like it's full of individual people. You never want it to make it feel like you're kind of being lazy with the background, but right. it's always like, all right, then each person needs their own look and feel. And, and then eventually the further back in their crowd. Yeah. <laughs> but a crowd scene could take days to draw. Probably. It could take days. It's, yeah. Easily. Yeah. <laughs> now the book is named after two male protagonists. They're the, the Montague twins. Uh, but their sister Charlie has an equal role, really, in the in the story. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the importance of making sure that there was a very strong female presence uh, in the uh, in the story. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure it sounds trite at this point, but Charlie didn't really give us a choice. 
Um, <laughs> of course, we we wanted to make sure that there was um, representation in the book. Um, you know, especially important, making sure that there was a, a strong uh, female character. But in writing Charlie, she's she's a force. Um, she's she really really grounds the twins in some very important ways and just makes makes them better at what they do. So. Um, in terms of importance, it was pretty high for us, but in the end, she was coming out that way, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> well, I mean, it's they... like, just like real life, really. It's mm -hmm. like, we, we drew upon a lot of the strong female influences in our own lives. And when they start turning these into movies, she can spin herself off into uh, a, a, another another set of movies like Black Widow has with the Avengers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First of all, I love the way you're thinking. Second, <laughs> uh, and second, like we, that's actually something we've actually talked about. It's like, oh, like wouldn't it be great if it was just like the universe and you know, uh, people were creating these different worlds where there's a Rowan story and a Charlie story. So yeah, yeah, love it. That was the Montague Twins, the Witch's Hand writer Nathan Page and illustrator Drew Shannon. That book is available wherever you buy fine books. And let's hope we can go to a movie theater soon and see it there too. A big thanks to Nathan and Drew. Also, a big thanks to Michael Harris, author of All We Want, Building the Life We Cannot Buy. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. Wow.